Hi guys, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Interaction Lab podcast. Before we begin, just a heads up. During this episode, we'll be talking about dementia, a family of progressive terminal brain diseases which are now the leading cause of death in the UK. Some people may find aspects of this topic distressing. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Interaction Lab podcast. This is brought to you by City Interaction Lab and the Centre for Human-Computer Interaction Design at City University of London. Uh, I'm Stuart Scott, Interaction Lab Manager and your host for this um, this episode. Um, and if you weren't aware, we're, the Interaction Lab podcast is all about speaking to experts in HCI and related fields um, about design and various other things that would be of interest um, to basically provide food for thought uh, for people interested in these areas. And today we're very lucky to be speaking to Rick Williams, um, who's an alumni of our HCI course. And, yes. uh, and uh, also, you know, he's going to be telling us today about his work at the Alzheimer's Society. Um, so thanks a lot for joining us, Rick. Hey, not a problem, Steve. Always happy to come back to, to the centre. Yeah, we, we appreciate your support and your, your, you know, taking your time to come in and speak to us today. So this is an actual physical in-person podcast, which is quite exciting because the last one was on Skype. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Well, it's- I think it's true of a lot of people who come through the, the centre. It's always nice to come back to City and, and, uh, and the lab. Brilliant. And yeah, I mean, it, it's you know, good that we've got such a good community willing to do these things for us. Um, yeah, for sure. You definitely see it on, uh, in industry and on the scene. Yeah, great. Um, so I suppose we're, we're going to start off at the very beginning, as we, as we will. Um, so everyone starts somewhere. Um, so maybe, Rick, maybe you could just do a bit of a, you know, I've sort of mentioned, alluded to the fact you were a HCI the master's graduate, um, but maybe just talk about your background, um, you know, what, what your interests are, and that sort of thing, outside of work. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, outside of work, um, uh, I'm really interested in, in, in uh, adventure travel and adventure sports. So kind of getting into the, into the backcountry and exploring rivers, whitewater rivers and uh, uh, mountainous areas. Actually, one of the things I'm going to be doing this, this year after February is take a, a mini career break and go ex- uh, explore the Altiplano in Bolivia and Peru by, 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 by bike with a, with, a, with, a, with a friend. But that's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of happens in my, in, my, in my life periodically. And it was at, at one of these kind of stages when I, um, between finishing undergrad and figuring out what to do, um, I did some, some youth development work in Central America in my mid-twenties, came back, and wanted to figure out what I needed to, needed to do post-undergraduate. Um, and that eventually led to me coming to coming to City. So I, I started with an undergrad at Imperial in food, the food industry and international business. But I kind of knew I didn't want to do that as a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So very belatedly, I got careers tested uh, with, with, um, with somebody. And uh, what was, in hindsight, interesting about that, uh, we did lots of different tests, questionnaires, interviews, sketching over a few weeks. But the thing that sticks in my, in my head was uh, a questionnaire that was on a CD-ROM, one of those CD-ROMs in a protective case. This is back in 2005. <laughs> and wow, for, ju- for young people out there, yeah. CD-ROMs are these, these shiny discs that you insert in a hole in a computer. Yeah, it's far out, it's such a long time. It was in a protective case as well. That's how old school it was. Wow. Um, and it's old school even then, but one of the f- interesting things, looking looking back, it ca- it spat out possible careers you could do, and the careers were things like archivist, library scientist, web developer, web designer, okay. um, multimedia something, 
um, um, in, the, in the kind of the plot in the visualization of these careers and the relative appropriateness to you based on the, the questions you the answers you give into questions you could in hindsight draw like a, a plot of user experience or user experience weighted to uh, perhaps to content or information architecture information design and it's quite interesting hindsight to kind of go well the system the questionnaire didn't know what that was when i was 25 and some of the words that are used in the stream today weren't really used or invented then but in hindsight that little cd-rom quiz kind of got it right at least in my so, opinion. so the cd-rom quiz basically identified user experience before it was a thing yeah yeah like uh, i didn't until i didn't know what human computer interaction design was it wasn't you know, particularly back then you know unless you knew you, you don't know what you don't know i suppose when you're choosing courses or what you want to, to perhaps do or, or work towards and um after after kind of doing this this work i was like well it looks like i probably need to go back to university and do some kind of practical train training um and so i did my research and narrowed it down to a, a, a master's called electronic publishing at loughborough and a master's discontinued now called electronic publishing at city and I got I got really lucky and got a scholarship for the one at City that's closer to industry and you know University of Business and Professions versus Loughborough mm -hmm. in the in the sticks uh, and came here for that course. And what was interesting my first semester was the exposure to human, the module human computer interaction design and uh, inclusive design. These things I had no idea existed, and I kind of realised I was on not the wrong masters, but I really wanted to do the other masters, the human centered systems. So the grass is greener over there. Yeah, they they overlapped some of them with their core modules, and they were both very good courses in different ways. Um, uh, but I was quite lucky to be able to do to do both of the masters because I worked at the university after I graduated, and then the university funded funded HCS, so I managed to have the opportunity to have a broad range. Of training in how to code on the front end, the back end, publishing law, writing, content, visual design, uh, the foundation of how web systems work from binary up from the electronic publishing side, mm -hmm. and then be able to go really into the human centered side with the other masters. So, and that accidentally came together really nicely. Nice. So, it's kind of through this, you know, you went out, you were sort of exploring the wilds of somewhere, you had an epiphany that you weren't working somewhere you wanted to work, yeah. you come back, you get yourself tested to work out well, what's the right career for me, it sends you on one path, which was EP, and then it turns out, well actually, you know, once you've been exposed to the HCI side, you realise that that's really what, what your true calling is. Um, yeah, so you, you just don't know what you don't know when it's research in your project or, or in life. Um, yeah. It was really silly, when I was younger, I spent my... I had some money to go do a careers testing at school at the right time when you're meant to do it. Yeah. I, I spent the money on paying off my tuck shop debt, which was oh, wow. turned out to be a very poor investment decision in my own 16 year old Rick, but mm. figured it out later and, and, and got it right. Yeah. Did you just say 16 year old Rick? 16, like when you were oh, right, figuring yeah. out. I was going to say, you're not that stuff. old. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. There's no salt and pepper yet. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, no. It was one of those silly things. You look back and go, what, what were you thinking? You should have really perhaps done your careers testing instead of paying off your tuck shop debt. I can't believe you had to pay for that. When I was at school, I offered it for free. But when I went in there, they basically said I wanted to be like a Blue Peter presenter. And oh, nice. like, well, that's not a real job. And I'm just like, yeah, you could point. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to have a dream, haven't you? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, a better, that's still a better dream. When I was speaking to careers advisors at school, they're like, uh, I know I did do, I did the cheap careers test. Oh, right. I spent most money on my debt and did like a, the cheap £10 test. Is that the main Morrisby or something? Yeah. And it came up with tax collector. And I was like, well, that's 
That's Even if that's what I was good at, that's not what I'd ever want to admit to being. This is clearly nonsense, careers testing. Yeah. And it took, I had to mature a little bit to figure out that maybe sometimes you need to seek in your life for different reasons and different ways, professional advice. Nice. And, um, but yeah, luckily that's got you to where you are today. Um, so you mentioned that you, you spent some time working at City. And I think, yeah, yeah. so, you know, maybe if you could touch briefly on what that experience was like and what you learned from there and how you applied yourself and then how you ended up where you are today, perhaps. Yeah, so City's been a big, um, ended up being quite a big part, part of my life, partly with the, the, tra- the training and my, my first role. So I started as, as a, a, a front-end developer in the, the, the web team. So universities kind of have two, two halves, the obvious academic branch and then um, kind of the civil service branch, the bit that makes it run, professional branch. Yeah. And so I worked. I worked in in the uh, in the web team, and we worked. We had a, a really a really a really strong department and strong and strong team, um, who were very supportive of uh, user centered processes. Uh, a lot of them have come actually come through the electronic publishing masters and through oh, okay. the center proxy center for HCI as well. Um, and we started off my career working in kind of in front end code and making sure we we're making the right thing with research and design and actually. Handcraft, handcrafting the interface of the system in the CMS to actually breathe life into it. And um, when I had the opportunity to do the second master's, that's when I, I kind of changed the, 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 the role into um, UX architect at City and went away, stepped away from uh, developing as pri- primary role and into information design and research and content design and modeling. And we began to grow what we think was the first UX team in the sector. Okay. We had a nose around uh, the interwebs looking for other universities in UK and Europe and certainly in, in the, the, the European context we couldn't find any other institution that was doing exactly what we're doing back back uh, back then at the end of the end of the noughties and since then that's, that's substantially changed and even the, the team at City has grown in terms of the type of practitioners it has researchers designers architects developers and that kind of high performing in-house balance team. Cool. Uh, and I suppose you know. So that's you know. You you mentioned that you you know you did had an experience and background in coding. You've moved into UX. Um, so a lot of people. Well, have that's to, the thing. Coding is part of the broad church of UX. Yeah. Uh, what you co- what you code on the front end and and and, and, and the back end is in, instructive for meeting needs and access requirements and and, and, so, and so much. But it's it's often decoupled in people's thinking that you. Kind of, you have designers and researchers, and then there's some kind of chasm with developers. But it's it's a trope that's less true than it was, but can still can still be can still persist. But um, inversely or conversely, um, you don't necessarily have to understand or be able to code in order to apply yourself to UX, because a lot of people worry that you need to be able to code to do. Yes, this is, this is a perennial f- debate. Yeah. Um, it'll probably never never go away, but it's one. It's it's one that's worth it's a debate that's worth 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 worth, worth certainly worth having ha- having and for people to encounter and have a, p- a position on. I I certainly wouldn't say that to be a designer or a researcher you need to be able to code, but I certainly say it's it, it can be pretty useful even yeah. if you have a, an understanding of the rudiments, kind of in the same way that you don't really need to understand how to how an internal combustion engine works or how to make one. But it's pretty useful if you have a car and the way it runs, or how to talk to the mechanic, or, or things like that. Yeah, it's uh, there isn't a definitive position. In my experience, I think it's pretty useful, and I still lean on the fundamentals quite a lot. 
in my understanding of how things work or how perhaps I prototype in code or work with a developer um, or just un unfix fix a problem with the system until a real solution is, is, is made by the, by the development team. But it's, um, so it's definitely useful to understand. Um, it can be pretty enjoyable to be able to, to touch, to, touch, to do the, create, the real creation of what the service or the product rather than the, the theoretical proposed creation in sketch or in vision or sort of yeah. proxy tools for reality. Uh, but it's but it's definitely not mand mandatory for, for somebody. Yeah. And as, as industry matures, if you go back, if you go back, you know, twenty years, you ha you have a. This is, I think, true in in many industries, um, but certainly ours. If you go back to the dawn of the dawn of the century, you'd have roles like webmaster, who would mm -hmm. do a little bit of writing, developing, design, hosting, server admin, jack of all trades. Um, uh, and, and as industry has progressed, roles have become increasingly specialised, and, and uh, which, is, which, which, which makes sense. So it's certainly less common to have a developer designer. Yeah, I, I suppose that because of the scale of the sites people are now responsible for, and the sort of yeah. people are not taking it more seriously, but they have to be more structured about it. Yeah, so you can't be a master of everything. Yeah. And, and people talk about UX unicorns, and they might not really be thinking of the development side necessarily, but. Even if you abstract development away, can you really be a brilliant UI designer, researcher, content uh, uh, strategist? Uh, yeah. All of these decompose into, into greater greater specialisms. Yeah, I mean, my, my take on that debate is, like you, it's kind of, you know, I did a bit of coding in the past and I can understand how things work. And I think that helps having a conversation with developers because you're talking their language in a way and you understand the constraints they work yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean if you can't code, you, you can't still be a, a good and efficient UX guy, just as long as they, you make oh, the yeah. to it's, understand. It's the, not a null-sum game, like it's, everyone has, there are still many paths into industry and different people bring, might, might be bringing different skills and experience into, in, into their practice. I certainly, I don't know how true this is in the round, but I, I seem to have encountered a lot of people who are perhaps journalists sort of that come into industry and it's pr probably useful because you're able to write and interview and manage workflow at pace and then flesh out your technical knowledge and you might have fundamental aptitudes that are more similar than they might be at face value that you bring into research, certainly maybe research or, or, or content design, UX writing and, yeah. and things like that. And like psychologists are good at this. Oh stats. yeah, psychology, of yeah. course. Yeah. Ergonomists, yeah, it's, yeah. It's kind of, and that's the good thing about UX in general and also I think that the HRD course that we do here is that it's a broad church so when you sit around, like when I was doing a part-time class, I just walked around mm -hmm. the room and you had people from all sorts of industries yeah, moving yeah. into UX and it's kind of nice <laughs> to see that everyone's got their own take on it. Yeah, it's been it's super interesting to see how, how that's how that's developed over time. I, I mean, I th I think it's hard sometimes to think what it was really like uh, in in reality when you started doing anything. But I th I think I might have been one of the last kind of HCI people. Um, we go to a UXPA event and it would be you know five people, a couple of you know maybe ten some warm backs and would geek out about some really specific stuff and ar around about the t beginning of the 2010s uh, it ex UX was, was properly coined and it, it exploded and I didn't go to, to UXPA events for maybe better part of a year and I, I went to one and I, was, I, I thought I was in the wrong room when I arrived there were so many people there and, yeah. and uh, the industry is totally growing in, in, from perhaps a more niche pursuit grounded more in academia uh, in, into 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 path of the course to make to make services and products that work. 
Yeah, and, and you mentioned UXPA there. Um, you know, you have a role there, which we'll be touching on later. But you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just what is your role? Um, so my, my role is social media lead. Um, so we, we in the structure of UXPA, well, UXPA is a is a is a professionals association for user experience uh, practitioners around the world, and so that we have as an umbrella organisation of UXPA International, and then chapters in cities and/or countries, depending how big the industry is. And in the UK, it's uh, UXPA UK, and we we're kind of part meetup. We arrange uh, our monthly events uh, around a particular uh, theme or topic. Um, we all, but we go beyond perhaps what a, just a meetup would do. So we run a mentoring scheme for people at different stages of their career to mentor or be menteed. Uh, we run careers events. Uh, we go a little bit beyond just um, share, sharing practitioner to practitioner practice. Um, and uh, the way we're structured, if people want to become involved, is a is a is a committee to to, to, to govern the, the 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 constitution and the funds and the strategy of the organisation, and then leads that extend roles to help set up events or run social media and, and, and run 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 the activities that we try to run in, in principally in the UK. Cool. So that's your sort of, uh, I mean, it, that's a brilliant organisation. I advise everyone to go and attend as many events yeah, as they can. Yeah, and you guys host us like at least once a year. So it's yeah. really useful. Um, but that's not the role we're here to talk about. So um, do you mind just um, kind of explaining your current day job and um, sort of, yeah. What, what yeah, sure. So, um, one of the about, you know one of the things is that the courses at City did really really well was in, introduce the the, 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 the the theory the precepts and the arguments for inclusive design and uh, accessibility from from the foundation of tra training and, and and career so it's kind of always been something that I was aware of as a practitioner and had had an interest in and generally I think this is true for any UX practitioner it's accessibility is, is, is very much part of designing uh, effective products and services for the di diversity of people, whatever thread of diversity you, you, you have. Um, in, in 2015, I took a, a, career, a career break and did some youth development work um, with a charity called Rally International. And one of the interesting things about working with them was the, the the direct mapping that you had between the effect of your work uh, and being able to, the work you did and the effect it had, whether that was sustainable development in a community or if you're leading um, a youth development track, the development of the team and, and the skills they had and how they worked together and the development of, of, of the people. So you had a like a, a direct direct daily contact with the the effect of your work rather than it being abstracted abstracted away. You saw the outcomes, mm -hmm. and so when I when I came back, I, I was um, I, obviously I wanted to return to to, to, to UX, but I, I really wanted to have a role where you had not necessarily in charity, but where you you, you had direct contact with with the worthwhileness of coming to work and spending a considerable time part of your life doing stuff. Yeah. So, um, uh, as somebody I'd worked uh, I'd worked with um, before uh, asked me to apply for a job at Alzheimer's Society, which is a national um, uh, advice, support, and, and research organisation for uh, people affected by uh, the, the, the dementias. And so, this is super interesting because you you have the ability to apply UX practice, but it has an inherent, a really clear. Uh, inclusive design angle, both for people who are on the dementia journey, being worried about changes in their brain, trying to get a diagnosis, 
live with that diagnosis and everybody affected by that, that person's diagnosis. So perhaps it's a, a husband and a wife or a family uh, and how, how, how that kind of terminal cognitive progressive disease affects the person and everybody around them. In addition, the dementias tend to have a weighting to affecting, to affecting older people, but certainly not exclusively. So you kind of had three aspects of, of, of uh, inclusive design. It's you know, equal opportunities disease. It affects anybody and everybody, wherever you come from, at any, in different ways at different times of your life. So you just have raw, raw accessibility and inclusion that you just need to do anyway. Yeah. But with depth into those two areas, super interesting, messy cognitive accessibility and uh, working with people who are typically, typically older, north of 55. Mm -hmm. So uh, the mixture of the inclusion and the ability to have direct, direct contact with the effect of your work to, to, to kind of, I sometimes think about it like a, it's kind of like the nitro that you eject into a, into a car. I had, I had, I had a, it was a Friday and I had an option, two different organisations that said, do you want to, 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 to work for us? It was like buses all coming, coming at once. Yeah. One was an agency and they, they, I remember in the interview they were talking about how they work for Adobe and they did some interesting work with the sign-up process and all of the products and that's kind of cool, it's a big organisation and if you make that work really well, the, the scale of the use of that kind of organisation you might get some real kick out of the effect that your work has and um, you could run some interesting methods, work with interesting people and, and, and have a really strong like, case study for others and that's totally cool. Yeah. You could do exactly the same mix of things for something again like dementia, uh, 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 have interesting work, interesting methods, have a good, good, interesting role, but you have the nitro of really changing people's lives who are in fundamental crisis. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, yeah, it's kind of this, you're not just doing it for the money, you're not just doing it for big business, you're doing it for real people in their real lives. Yes. I mean, all, um, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, all, all UX is about the users at the end of the day. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, you, your users are vulnerable, maybe vulnerable. I mean, oh, definitely, definitely they're vulnerable. in a hard time in their lives and any little, any little change you can make has a profound difference to them. Yes. Speed, slightly speeding up the Adobe sign-up process you know, might make some tree designers in Shoreditch happy. I mean, offensive yeah, guys, yeah, but you know, it's not really changing anyone's life. You know? Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I certainly wouldn't. Um, I'm certainly not anti for for profit or denigrate people who work in in for, for profit organisations. And it's entirely possible to work for a for profit that's doing interesting yeah. ethical work. Off the top of my head, Monzo is an interesting example in this area, balancing all of these the, 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 these the, these things in the in the interaction and, and the product. But it's definitely not like a, you need to work for a charity to have that. It's probably more typical in charity, but it's definitely not the only way. But it suited you as a person and what you were looking yeah, for at that stage the, in life. The, 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 the outcomes of your work are just more generalisation, but can be seem to me typically more distributed if you work in, in, in that kind of context. Uh, and and, and far more direct if you're working in that, in that kind of cause. I remember one of the first pieces of work I, I, I did with the society, I was coming back into industry and figuring, I need to figure out dementia in the organisation, there was some work already in flight before I, before I started and they, uh, we wanted to go to the, they wanted to go to the inter, in, uh, interaction lab, they'd had something booked elsewhere, wouldn't rate it, it wasn't city, plug, interaction lab at city, awesome. Yeah, um, we'll pay you off, yeah no worries. <laughs> um, um, but uh, I, 
uh, it, it was a really interesting experience. I, 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 it's a, a typical lab, typical setup, but we'd, we'd recruited people who are affected by dementia for this particular study. So these are people who might have a parent with dementia and they're, they're working in the city, they're trying to be uh, either a proxy carer for their parent or, or actually doing two roles, living with their parent and holding down a J job and trying to balance the, quite a lot of quite a lot of very uh, significantly spinning spinning plates and it was it was really interesting the first participant in the in the interview before we went into into the in, into the session was talking about what it was like to live with a, her husband who had mid-stage vascular dementia and she was saying well for three years I, I haven't had a good night's sleep uh, I, I spend uh, he's always he can't sleep anymore he's always waking up he wakes me up um, I'm trying to take care of him and, and do my job. I'm not sleeping properly. I'm on the forum from Alzheimer's Society at four in the morning on my phone trying to just chat to other people and not feel so, so isolated. She, she, she talked about going on holiday. She got some respite care. and She went to Amsterdam for, for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And this, this, um, this at face value sounded like not a great piece of respite care because she told her husband she was going going away and somebody would be taking care of him, but he can't encode those memories. So he's, so she went away and she, he was phoning her every half an hour going, where are you? I don't know where you are. Yeah. I, we talked about this. I'm in Amsterdam. It's fine. I'm going to be back on Sunday. The next 30 minutes. I, I, where are you? I'm in Amsterdam. Where are you? I'm in Amsterdam. Where are you? I'm in Amsterdam. To stress the point, where are you? I'm in Amsterdam. But that respite, that, that time away was still really, um, powerful powerful respite for her, even though it might sound like a really it's still in many ways quite a stressful experience yeah. and it was, it was the I, my first contact with one of our service users and it was it was so different to what I'd, I'd worked with before in the sense of the, the, the stress and the needs and the vulnerability that even the person without dementia has um, later later that later that day somebody, somebody same study similar setup somebody else came in and in, again, in the interview stage, they, they just they, they started uh, crying. And it's like, oh, crikey, research ethics alert, alert. Yeah. Uh, do we cancel, cancel the study? Are they okay? Uh, okay, wow, this, this has never happened before because I just haven't been working with people in this kind of situation. And it's, it, over time, it was something that perhaps happens about one every 10 per, ten per person, 10% of the time, that somebody is under so much pressure, um, so much stress, that when they come into the context of a, an interview or a research session, they don't realize that they, 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 they're suddenly in a space where they can release some of that pressure. And it's a little bit like your can, a bottle of Dr. Pepper. And you're, you're under so much pressure and you, you start probing around their needs and their context and their dementia journey. And it releases that and they start spontaneously being quite, quite, quite emotional. They work through it and it's, it's okay. And they, they, continue the session. And I mean, it, it's all, it sounds like you know it's you're doing therapeutic for them because it, it, it's it an opportunity it's, to talk and someone's going to be impartial and listen to them. You know, absolutely. It's, at face yeah. value, it sounds terrible. Your research participant cried in your, in your session. What the hell were you doing? Yeah. Um, I now have a line in my UX budget for, for, for Kleenex, which sounds silly, but it's part of my research toolkit because yeah. this, this happens. Um, uh, and but, and you, don't, you don't want it to happen. You don't want dementia to be a, to be a thing. You don't want people to be dying from a horrible cognitive disease that kills the person and eventually takes the, takes the body. Uh, horrible, horrible family of pernicious sorts of dementias. But you do know in that, in, in that kind of situation that it's the, the work you're doing 
is really worthwhile. And that's not, that's not true to that extent in a lot of people's careers. Not that the work they're doing is bad or not interesting at all, but that's, it's an unusual, it's an, you're really working in an ex, extreme users in an extreme situation. It's, it's a sort of the sharp edge, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, for those people that may be moving into a role like that or are currently in a role like that and haven't maybe been in that sort of situation, do you have any advice for those people that find themselves in a, emotionally charged sessions or working with users that might be vulnerable? Forewarned is definitely forearmed. I, I um, at the Alzheimer's Society, this was a, a, a lead role setting up a digital team with a UX component. So it wasn't like I came into an existing team and could be briefed. Um, I was still working through some of the, the foundational training modules for anybody that worked at the society. Um, but I, I definitely, def this is this is certainly true for, I mean, research, setting research in, in, in general, but to have. Uh, Check your research ethics, check your plan, and have exit strategies that are appropriate to, to close the research in an appropriate way. Um, and certainly plan to provide ongoing support to the person. Um, so we were in the in the lab yesterday checking the accessibility of a of a service. And some of that was pure accessibility work with people with in this case visual impairments of different kinds. Mm -hmm. But some people who are worried about their memory pre-diagnosis. And um, so after that, after the, 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 these sessions, we, we, we try to connect them with particular people in Alzheimer's society to help them to resolve this issue. So a mixture of having an exit strategy for the, for the research itself, if it really doesn't work or it really isn't appropriate, then just need to stop. Mm -hmm. um, and also factoring for actually perhaps moving a little bit beyond your role as pure digital practitioner into the work of a dementia advisor a little bit, at least in the context of the things you think you know from working in the society and connecting someone who really knows what they're doing to provide that kind of advice and support. So if you've got the opportunity to signpost someone, just... Yes, sort of beautiful work, expert, lots yeah. of science, sign, yeah. signposting, because in, in, the, in the screening, um, secondary screening, in the interview, in the session, you, you have a pretty good idea of their, 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 their context and their needs, and you have a pretty good idea of what you think they might need if they want it. And it's it's can be quite complex to figure that out yourself at the best of times, mm -hmm. let alone if you're either under that much stress as a carer of different kinds, or if you're the person with with dementia and all of the, the limits that's placing on your cognition. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's quite an emotive topic, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so you're you're pointing UX at, at the biggest killer in the UK. A lot of your customers are dying, and or the, the people around them, they're, they're, they're the consequences of, the, of a person with a, having somebody in your life with a, a, a diagnosis like dementia is, re is really significant. Partly you might have a parent who is now on, on a journey that will lead to their, their untimely death and you may lose a lot of the person that you knew in the process. But you also, you know, depending on how much stress you're under, can really increase the the risk factors for yourself developing dementia, not because dementia is a contagious disease, it, even an a, a hereditary disease, it isn't really, but the, the stress that you're under can lead to things like uh, isolation, changes in diet, not taking care of yourself, increases your risk factors for a co any number of, of uh, negative health outcomes, including with dementia. So you, you really have quite a collection of messy, messy needs, but very, it, I mean, it just doesn't get as, as serious as in, in research and design. You, the, 
there are things that are important, but when you start wrangling with death, that's it's about as real as it gets, really, isn't it? Yeah. And so, how are Alzheimer's society sort of tackling this? Like, how are you applying digital within the society uh, for this? Yeah. So, uh, in in the uh, Alzheimer's society, is a slightly mislabeled organisation because we, we 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 factor for all of the dementias. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are around about a hundred or so dementias. But the distribution isn't isn't equal. Alzheimer's disease is the daddy. It's about two thirds of diagnosis di- diagnoses followed by vascular dementia and frontotemporal dementia and mixed dementia and lots of other 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 dementias. But we, we work with anybody uh, and support anybody that's worried about trying to get a diagnosis or living with um, any of any of the dementias. And in the U- in the UK, that means around about getting closing in now on about a million people with a diagnosis. And then that about twice that who are directly affected by that person's diagnosis. So quite quite a quite a lot of people in the, from all walks of life, typically older, but certainly not. Um, and the mission of the society is is has three main parts: partly to provide advice and support, so people know what to do and um, can manage with dementia better; mm-hmm. partly to fund research to defeat defeat dementia, and partly to shape policy about how dementia is perceived in the community, how services are designed, and, and perhaps policy at governmental level, how, how dementia is funded or not funded. But in terms of digital, the lion's share of our work is, is, is around advice and support and normal stuff as a chari- any charity does, like uh, fundraising and, uh, and, and things like that to make the charity viable. You know, that's one of the interesting things about organisations like charities like Alzheimer's Society, um, you have the core stuff that any charity does, fundraise and have a cause, but digital can actually f- del- can uh, deliver on trying to solve the cause itself through digital services and, and content, which is not true of ev- every charity. So, so specifically they're trying to sort of tackle it through information? Through yes, through content services, information services. So, I mean, some a charity might, uh, some one charity might... Um, might have a, and there's always a role for content in whatever you do to to to, 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 to expand on the cause and raise funds. But um, the mission of R and LI is saving lives at sea, and that's the sharp end of their their work. And they digital has a role to play in raising the funds and awareness, and perhaps giving people some advice about what to do and not do around water. But an organisation like Parkinson's or Macmillan or Alzheimer's Society. That's still true, but you can go a long way to helping people along the dementia, uh, the, the diagnosis journey for the disease. It's going to be what's a wrong, more. what do you do, what's yeah. going to happen next, what do you need to organise, uh, how do you deal with your emotions, the practical stuff. Uh, all those things are really fighting the 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 the, 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 the deliver, fighting the delivering the cause yeah. itself rather than perhaps talking about it. Yeah, because yeah, with the RNLI you wouldn't have advice for family members because it's like the same advice for you, isn't it? And yeah. Whereas, you know, with sort of health-related charities, it's kind of like more about the family members but the people that are living through the condition. Yes. You know, yeah, so it's yeah. like it expands and there's more and more content that you've got to then position and present it and make sure it's appropriate for the, the right Yes, users. absolutely. And, and depending on the, the, the certainly healthcare disease-based charities, it's probably a continuum. Everybody, there are typical patterns. People can come into this at any stage, but mm-hmm. typically something's wrong i don't know what it is how do i figure out what it is oh it's that what do i do now 
and that may go many different ways. And depending yeah. on the disease, it might even affect your ability to manage it. Certainly something like Alzheimer's disease that affects at neuron level everything and anything your brain does. I mean, yeah, it, that must be a challenge in itself, trying to design web content for people who may not be as cognitively capable as yes, everyday it's, users. Yes, it's a super interesting area for inclusive design. I mean, on my, you can't see this on the podcast, but on my laptop, I have a big picture of a sketch of a, a neuron, and it's... It's interesting because it's it's the, in, the absolute intersection of user experience. This is where every every experience, whatever you have, voice, haptics, digital, whatever, it all happens. Your, your whole everything you are happens at, at, at neural yeah. level, really. Uh, it's the bi- the binary of your digital digital experience, I suppose. Yeah. But that's also where where the d- dementia happens. It's the absolute intersection of UX and um, uh, and dementia and anything that your brain does which is everything, is affected by dementia. Typically, the most uh, what, what people think about is, is changes to, to, to memory, working memory, short-term memory, and then progressively into medium and long-term memory as the disease progresses. And that's um, in, the, in the way that Alzheimer's disease is the most famous of the dementias, memory, short-term, and progressively to long-term memory being de- de- decayed and destroyed is the typical symptom. But it's more than that. It's, uh, uh, you can... You can affect your ability to use to use depending on the dementia to a greater or lesser extent depending on the individual can can affect your ability to use words language process that kind of information mm-hmm. forgetting what word to use forgetting using the wrong word in the wrong context perhaps you're in a business meeting and you're talking about the sales in the in july but you're really meaning september but you don't the rest of the people in the room are like wait what to you it's totally normal you don't haven't made the connection mm-hmm. subtle changes are happening in, in your brain would be perhaps one example of language uh, your ability to pair to, to to sequence and process information changes so what a process that might work online for most people depending on what access need they may or may not have might be appropriate to go through a multi-stage process to achieve an outcome but if your if your ability to to, to encode memory memories and understand what you're working on over a very short period of time is decayed, you might not make it to the end of that process. Um, your ability, to, the way you perceive visual information changes, um, you you and I might be able to focus on something. Most people, if you're running an eye tracking study, might focus on certain things, maybe the eyes on a face in a picture of a person or, or the way the headings and the, um, the, the text are laid out in a certain way on an interface and the menus and you might see typical patterns that would be normative. They may or may not be what you want to see in your design, but you can make sense of it. Um, for some people with dementia, they'll just tune out and they'll be looking at, at the wrong things. They're, they're, they're perceiving the information in a different way and they're not following. They're not looking at the interface or the design in, in quite the same way. So you need to factor for how much information you, you provide, what kind of breakpoints and sectioning you have to, to frame what they need to pay attention to. So we kind of covered language and words and aspects of memory and, um, and kind of processing information and how that declines. Um, you can hallucinate, um, to, to borrow from human factors and, and design in, 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 in the physical space, it's quite normal to go into a building and maybe they've got a, a mat at the door and it's usually a dark colour, maybe really dark charcoal grey and it's a good, it's a sensible colour because you know, you're on a white mat, it's going to be horrible and dirty and, and look horrible. But with somebody with de- somebody with dementia, um, that can look like a bottomless pit, and they're trying to come into the building and going, "Oh crikey, it's 
Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I, I've got to get across this chasm with a bottomless hole of what's mm. going on, and this is really scary, and what's going on, and all these people are, are in their way, and crikey, what do I do? Um, and, uh, although it's not digital experience design, in the broad church of user experience design, that's uh, something that people would factor for in a design physical space. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, probably the last like, symptom to factor major type of symptoms factor for and this kind of touches on some of the others but the ability to, to, to maintain attention um, you know you you like uh, sci- sci-fi and, and things and you know there's a scene in one uh, I'm, I'm not that I'm not I'm not quite on your level but in one of the one of the the holy trinity of of, of um, Star Wars films they're, they're going into the trench and the Death Star and there's oh, like yeah. a, a, someone saying like stay on target stay on target and in your in your session, perhaps you're working on a, trying to with an interface with somebody with dementia. In your internal dialogue, because occasionally you need to have some complexity. You can't simplify everything yeah. to, to, uh, to, to to a completely flat flat system. In your internal dialogue, you might be going, "Stay on target, stay on target," and they're gone. Yeah. It's, it's just too it's just too much of an ask. Uh, to, to, it's just too complex for, for, the, for that particular type of person where it might be entirely appropriate for, for the medium. So, I mean, there's a hell of a lot to, to deal with and to keep, on, to keep in mind when you're designing. Yes. Um, and I think when we were preparing for this, you mentioned that you guys employ the user-centered design process in order to sort of tackle some of these challenges. As much as we can, because we are very, um, not partly because we're a charity, but in terms of the, the just a raw headcount we have in the team, mm-hmm. we can't apply it to everything all of the time. So we have to be quite judicious about where my time goes and, and, and some allied roles in the team. But there must be some strategic projects. That you yeah. Know. So we typically try we try and we try and map up, map the process to to uh, where it's likely to have maximum effect, usually for our service users, occasionally for trying to influence a stakeholder to win a larger whole of evangelizing ECD and unlocking investment in, in resource to grow the, the capability. Mm-hmm. But, but typically we'll be, be looking at our, our digital, one of our online advice and support services and trying to make those as effective as possible with a, with a strong onus on the capabilities of people with dementia and or people who might, might be older and or uh, stressed and or mobile and all of the things that start going into normal non-dementia design. And so, do you have an example of perhaps a project you've done or you've been working on at the moment that you, where you've employed UCD or you've considered some of those? those yeah, aspects? yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, the Alzheimer's Society has organisations often have five-year strategies, and nine times out of ten, it's just guff from senior leadership teams uploaded to the website somewhere and not touched again until uh, maybe there's a new CEO and a new five-year plan. Yeah. Um, and that's, in my experience, being slightly cynical, that's typically what happens. However, there is an exception to every rule. And at Alzheimer's Society, we actually, we actually have a pretty good strategy. We, one that people go back to talk about and embrace. That's actually used, I suppose. Wow. And the, the strategy, the strategy is, is to, at its, at its, at its heart, is to, is to reach everybody affected by dementia in, 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 in the countries that we work. Uh, uh, by, 20, by 2025, because a lot of people don't actually access our services, uh, which is a, which is a shame because we could do a lot to help a lot to help them alongside other actors like the, the NHS and the good work that NHS Digital are doing and, and, 
the smaller the smaller organizations and this 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 uh, this 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 this, uh, this strategy has a major component it's about a new deal for support um, and how we uh, how the best way for us to reach to reach everybody affected by dementia really has a very strong digital component it's it's the only medium that can actually reach almost everybody apart from a, a, a small minority of people who who aren't and probably won't ever be online, um, and it's the only one that can 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 scale with the resources that we 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 have as a, as a charity. Um, part part of this strategy um, uh, is to it, it is also to, to provide telephone based support in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, we're we're still slightly a little bit of a federation where local offices fight the good fight in the field at the sharp end in the community. But, and they come, uh, but there isn't. They're, they're lacking a little bit of overarching strategy and, and, and effect in terms of being able to coordinate the resources more to get more value from them. So um, there's a new service that we're working on called um, Dementia Connect, and it has uh, a model where we, using marketing, social media, our local offices, uh, healthcare commissioners, um, GPs, GP practices, we intercept people at diagnosis time and pass them in to. They, if they opt in to telephone-based support, where one of our telephone advisors will understand their try to understand their needs, provide them with remote support if that's what they, they need at that time, or triage them into they have complex needs into um, a real-world service where one of the, our advisors will go go to them and, and provide them with one-to-one support. Mm-hmm. Um, and small angle for for this, it's worth remembering because dementia is a progressive terminal disease. There's an option to stay in contact with this service if you don't need it right now we'll check in with you periodically to see if see if things have changed yeah. from a, a to, so it's uh, this this service is at its heart has is it's, it's human led it's an advisor remote or in person providing guidance but digital has a significant role in terms of explaining the service introducing it or helping people self-serve so that they don't necessarily need to consume the resources of one of our advisors even if they're remote so this, this project's been looking at um, how how best to guide people through um, the complexity of figuring out what's wrong and what they need to do at different stages of the dementia journey in an ocean of information. Um, so one of the before this project, one of the things we worked on was really under, trying to understand the, the lay of the land for dementia in the UK in a way that was digital agnostic and even Alzheimer's society agnostic. So we. We, we, we started with a um, first project I worked on was an experience mapping project. So we, we interviewed about 50 people in different roles around the UK. We, uh, we, we surveyed our, our, the, the, these people at scale too. We did some really interesting work where we, we, we mined um, uh, uh, a million and a half social conversations from our forum, from Twitter about what people are talking about in terms of Redis, about what people are talking about in terms of dementia and trying to abstract what their needs might be mm-hmm. and, and, and validate those at scale a little bit. And we, we created a collection of journey maps and core personas that helped us understand uh, consistently across all of the roles, typically what might happen pre, during, post-diagnosis for the person, for people around them in the family and, and people working professionally in the area. Part of that influenced what we decided to do for digital in terms of the service, the service design. Um, so we, some of the insights from that were really about how, how complex it is to get a diagnosis, how easy it is to delay and perhaps forestall 
postpone getting drug treatments that might just slow the dementia down. There isn't a cure, but there are some drug treatments that can, can be effective, but you really need them as early as possible, perhaps even before you have symptoms. So how we, we steer people through the diagnosis journey and then the ocean of could possibly conflicting information and trying to access through Google um, and, and the effect of the cognitive change in the person, their ability to do that kind of desk research. Um, so what we've been working towards is a kind of a two-stage process, guiding people through our, uh, the content we already have um, and then if that doesn't meet their needs, passing them into a self-referral process where which will then trigger a call back from Alzheimer's Society and that, that remote support possibly leading into one-to-one -one support that's more tailored and more targeted. So kind of a mixture of content, service, service design for content and then continuing that service design into this new service uh, telephone-based support. So I spent so many things in this project and right. that's super succinct on that. So, you, I mean, you know, you explored the problem space through sort of mining a lot of big data through a ton of interviews and things like that in order to define... Yeah, so that, that created like a foundational piece of research document, uh, insight for the society. And then when we really started working on some of the, 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 the recommendations from this, this five-year strategy and this foundational research, it kind of happened the wrong way around. The strategy happened first, then we created the digital team and then kind of like, wait, guys, we need to really do, do some... These are great ideas, and we're broadly are probably on the right track, but we need to actually evidence this. Yeah. Um, you're saying we need to make this this cool widget for the site, and you're probably brought your heart's in the right place, and you're kind of not wrong, but you don't really know that that's true, or even if it's feasible, or even if it's appropriate for the type of people we have. Let's understand the lay of the land, and then start start small. So that when we started this piece of work we began with um, kind of blueprinting the service with people who uh, who are work fighting dementia for us internally maybe they're delivering an online service or delivering dementia cafes mm -hmm. similar piece of parallel piece of work with people worried about dementia caring or living with dementia to understand their experience of the diagnosis journey and what their needs were trying to extract patterns patterns from that factoring for fundamentals like for most people most of the time mobile is how they access our services mm -hmm. so kind of uh, needs first mobile second and then, and then content third so thinking about the information we actually have which is generally high, high quality but is structured in a way that has constraints in terms of how we could serve it to people so and, and potentially the language might not have been right for your target audience especially those people that you know. Yes, content content's super expensive, and it's you hear you hear people say content first or mobile first or needs first, and not everything can be first. Yeah, but yeah. There's a truth there's a truth to, to, to these things that people people talk about, um, and so what we're trying to do is is mitigate people's lostness. There, what we were kind of talking about in terms of um, bad googling and just not necessarily knowing what to search for or make running repeated searches or, or being lost in a notion of inf possible information, even just from us, let alone the, the world, and giving them some structure to, to lead them through a, a lightweight decision tree that would guide them from roughly what their role is, roughly what stage they might be at, if known, what type of dementia they have, what collection of thematic needs they that might be relevant for them at that moment, and then giving them a very focused collection of resources that provide them with should appears to provide them with clarity and certainty to begin focused research or even just meet their needs. And if that's not enough, that's okay. 
we can then triage them into this into self-referral, pass a lot of the information they've told us to the advisor. So the advisor's briefed or more briefed than doing a total cold call. They might know where someone's from, what type of dementia, what stage, and understand who be able to prepare the resources and the conversation they're going to have rather than do it totally cold uh, over the over the phone. So trying to help people find the information they need so that they're, they're we, we, we meet their, their, their functional needs and also their emotional needs. It's very very stressful experience. It's always there worrying about what's what's wrong and what's going to happen happen next and what's wrong with me and how do I, do I get a diagnosis? Do I not get a diagnosis? My father almost certainly has dementia, but he's in absolute denial about it. What on earth do I do? I, I, I'm pretty sure it's dementia from what I've read and my whole family agree with him. It's probably just nothing and it's going to go away. Yeah. All these messy needs and how to when you're that overwhelmed and that stressed, how to, to lead people through and, and give them some kind of clarity and or bridge them into focused support with a human. Um, so was that strategy prior to the, 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 the requirements gathering or was that kind of for, uh, defined prior? The... Uh, a lot of, we, we kind of went deep, deeper into what we thought we'd learned from the big the big picture yeah. and, and and what this strategy kind of instructed the organization to do so we didn't just um, take this foundational research or this is typically what happens for people these are the typical pain points some of those are super big and the government needs to sort that some of them are well we should probably just do our services mm -hmm. fix that problem with our services no one can find the forum if they're on our website and vice versa because yeah. they don't join our basics the stuff that we can control the stuff is super big uh, and opportunities and then we we, we we run a similar piece of work with ourselves blueprinting and journey mapping and interviews um, and um, take, taking a mobile content first approach to validating some of the ideas so we, 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 we don't have a lot of development capacity at the society so we recruited um, a, 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 a developer and, and desire, used uh, React and Contentful Headless CMS to be able to use real content from our site so we're working and uh, working code as early as possible to think about well you know what if does this decision tree idea work does it actually generate meaningful results and, and does it even work within the capabilities of the audience that we, we have and, and to do it at quite a high degree of fatality with real content with real code make, getting as close to reality as possible doing the research in the home on the person's device with with something that was pretty indistinguishable from real as much as was appropriate with the resources so i mean yes you, so it sounds like you were engaged with the users right at the start and you engage with them once you have yes, something as well yeah. so it's kind of you know they were all, they were there throughout the process as, yes absolutely yeah. we certainly didn't um come up with an idea and we're going to launch it in february and just and, and hope, hope yeah. for the best there are some really not necessarily unique um some of the work we're doing isn't is necessarily uh, super radical or transformative. We're not on the bleeding edge of a new interaction paradigm. It's it's fundamental. It's, it's trying to be much more effective with web web publishing. But for your with your audience in mind specifically, sort of thing. Um, yeah. And, and you alluded, or you mentioned the fact that you got a developer in to build the prototypes for the sessions, as opposed to using sort of Axial or Invivo or whatever. Yes. Did you find yeah. that this audience in particular needed something more real? I think this is this is true in general. Um, the, it's an infinite quest to narrow the gap with reality, and that the reality has so many strands. It, maybe you're doing a research in context instead of the lab. Maybe you're doing it on a participant's device instead of the device you've hired. Um, 
maybe they could tailor the, the, the prototype to their live needs so it's less hypothetical and they're imagining something perhaps pretty close to what they're like that's actually real for them yeah um and so by having a, a headless cms we could we couldn't have all of the content in there but we could in our screening and recruitment process we could go okay well participant three probably has these needs this is probably the information we would if we were going to give it to them they would need we'll load make sure that task is actually achievable in the mix of all of the information they could possibly have on the site or domain mm -hmm. and, and get as close to possible as that the infinite quest to the, the, the truth and total understanding of, 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 of the person their needs their context their abilities and so working in code is part of that it's not a clickable graphic or photos of a paper prototype there's a, certainly a role to that well that's the very first thing we did yeah but the second prototype onwards was in code and um, you, it, it's just a, it, once you've got it set up, it's a very fast and effective way of working. Um, um, I think it's underappreciated in the design process. A lot of people work in graphics programs and then try to translate that into code later in the process. And it's, yeah, it's always challenging, especially with data related things, when you're trying to get these pictures. Yes, yeah, it, it scales really poorly trying yeah. to write content in Azure or Sketch to, make, to, to generate the results pages. It, it, it become, this is where software and the machine is, is great at the scale and, and people, people aren't. And Absolutely. then you end up with generalizations and that's okay. But in terms of the, to, to be behind the eyes in the consciousness, in the, in the neuron of your participant, as close, it's impossible, but getting as close to that as you can to have that true understanding and empathy to the greatest extent possible with the resources that you have working in that way works, certainly is quite effective for us. How did the um, your audience respond when you you know now that you've got to this stage in the process? I mean, wh where are you in the process and how how have they been responding? We're um, we're going live in a couple of weeks um, for the for the first release. Um, but it was interesting. It was actually quite a harder than it seemed problem to solve because some of the things we thought would be pretty straightforward weren't straightforward. We thought we could ask people what their stage was, and that would allow us to radically change the content that came back problematic some people it's actually super messy maybe at the very beginning or the very end or in the middle maybe you can get your head around that but any any more nuanced it's an open book are you early middle 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 late yeah. it, it, and, and and do you do you really can you really make that decision um, or really understand that yourself it's another track to this just even if that you could do that and go well there's 11 point stages of dementia we can go this content is this person is stage 4a therefore the content is this even if the first part was true which it isn't people are messy to design for anyway dementia is super messy mm -hmm. on top of that our, our content just isn't structured in a way or exists in a way that where we could actually join that up as a in a very effective way you know some big picture content about stages but, but, but not that really precise answer similarly things we think people would just know i mean we knew this from the foundational research but it was, it was kind of further evidenced in in in, in, in the research uh when we we're doing this work you'd think that people knew what type of dementia they had it's such an it's a terminal disease you it's the kind of thing you'd expect to know you've got this type of cancer not that you've kind of got cancer yeah. but that's tip that's what can happen your GP might not tell you what type of dementia you have. You might, they might, if you're lucky, say it's dementia, but there's 99 types. 
Um, or if they do tell you in your 10 minute cons consultation where you get your results, um, you're told that you have a you have six minutes of preamble, three or four minutes of actually the focus of the, your 10 minute session, and then you're out the door and you're getting a terminal to that diagnosis and you're by yourself and you've got dementia. Can you even remember what you were told? Yeah. So some some assumptions like well we can tune we can knock out all of the content about these dementia types that aren't relevant isn't nearly as true as you as you would expect as a lay person and even when you kind of know through the research and working in the society so it's really problematic to try and find a way where that was simple and effective for the, for diverse people to work through in this tree that didn't just inflate the content results into a, a garbled mess of noise. You know, how to structure something that's achievable and focused that would deflate the possible content results to something really structured. And it's so easy to, to, to perhaps ask for more information than you can really process. Well, I have a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this. That sounds relevant. Boom, on the mobile phone yeah. screen. And then some of the assumptions and things we could ask really weren't true. So it's a surprise more complex than we, we initially thought in terms of trying to find a tree that was viable. And, and then how some of that, what that, how some of the information in that decision tree could be repurposed, if somebody self-referred to a dementia advisor, and how that information was passed across, in a way that would be useful for the dementia advisor and help them be briefed, plan, and, and do the call for their own needs and to be more efficient as a service. Mm -hmm. Every ten minutes you spend pre-call figuring out what the person's needs are and, and brushing up on that rare type of dementia you haven't dealt with for a while. At those 10 minutes over many thousands of calls scale in terms of inefficiency. So you're not just designing, you know, the front end system for the sort of uh, the people living with dementia, you're also worried about the presentation for those guys in the call center about to phone them out or not. As much as we as much as we can uh, with the with the resource we have and the complexity yeah. of the organization try to join a design a total service and we have we've had limits on how far we can go at least with this first release and it's definitely not ideal but trying to join up the total design the total service with many different actors in many different parts of the UK and with with change in the people you're working with and trying to maintain a project focus uh, and um what was your sort of key learnings whilst doing this? Um, you know, what, what takeaways could, could people learn from? Mm. I, I, I definitely, this is not unique to Alzheimer's Society, but it was really, it was, it was such a joy to be able to work in, in parallel, in tandem with a front-end developer, with real content with a system, contentful in this case, not amazing enough, but good enough to, to be able to manage the information we wanted to inject into the prototype. Um, that, that, that kind of trinity of, um, I know, I guess when you're making web, this is less true now, but back in the day, when you're making web, web publications, everything was all munched up in the source, HTML for markup and the presentation and bits of behavior injected in line and all a bit of a mess and you'd have issues making it work on different browsers and, Bit of a mess, and then about in the noughties, you have the holy trinity markup for semantics, CSS for style, JavaScript, and typically PHP for behavior. Pure the trinity. And in terms of experience design of information services, you have the, the trinity user needs first, 
probably you need to be going mobile first and factoring for other devices mm-hmm. along the curve. And uh, I will so often missed content as well, and bringing those together um, is such an, such an, if you can do it effectively, it really gives you so much more, so much more valid and useful and usable insights into whether you're designing an appropriate service. It's not hypothetical. You don't really know that you've answered the so what question. It's great that people can, can use the service. It's usable, it's functionally accessible, but have you actually met people's needs when they come out of the other end of the process? It can be much more of an open question if you're abstracted away from real, real information. So that's definitely part, part of it. Um, definitely trying to do some kind of contextual inquiry and understanding of the back the back office needs for a service if that's part of what you're working on mm-hmm. that can be instructive in terms of what influence and what happens on the front end um, and understanding what's really going to ha- what's really going to happen what does the advice in our case the dementia advisor need what what are their pain points and frustrations and does, do those overlap and co-join with the other side of the coin for the service user is are there ways to, to join those up for both parties there's certainly really really interesting work to do in terms of applying contextual inquiry methods and just the natural enjoyment and interest of the work as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. But being able to bring those into the into the project and, and the service design itself was is, was pretty interesting. Cool. Yeah, and it, like you mentioned earlier, it brings value to the staff members because you're saving them a ton of time. Yes. Uh, and it's at its scales. You know, sometimes you make design decisions that better or for worse live on for the better part of a decade and marginal gains marginal inefficiencies can have real 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 problems and one of the because they were were demoing the telephone only service with people being referred at diagnosis time only from certain gp practices in parts of the uk Mm -hmm. that part of this service was already live and being demoed and developed before we started the the self-service web Part of it, yeah. so we had a fair good opportunity to get insights from from them, and it was it was really interesting to see how they really worked and some of the things you you you, you might just assume weren't true, like they had tiny fifteen inch low resolution screens wow. rather than just a normal what is now a normal like twenty four inch plus rectangle. Um, they they were using IE six no sorry IE eleven the last version of IE it was. It, it had serious limitations of what you could use to, to, to render its stability and, and, and things like that. There was a wall in one of the demo sites where people had, rank, put photos of themselves and how much they hated the system. Brilliant photo uh, to, to bring back and understand that you know, there are real consequences. Did you don't you, give them the did right data. you were coming. Was this like quick? Well, that's the, one of the interesting the things. Uh, the, some of our IT can be a little bit unstable, and I got really, for better or for worse, quite lucky with one of the sessions. I was unlucky in the sense the systems were down, so I couldn't see how they were doing their job. Yeah. But I was really lucky that the systems were down, so I could spend time with them without getting in the way of them doing their job. And it was quite interesting because they're like, "Oh my goodness, someone has actually come from head office who wants to know what's going on and cares and that kind of thing," which is again not dementia specific and quite perhaps quite typical in contextual inquiry, maybe. Um, and, and to be able to understand their needs, frustrations, and pain points, and be able to make recommendations for that project and bring some of them back into into into, into our work in. in Digital, which is tip, was typically rated to front of house services. Yeah, and it must be said that you know the back office staff are often neglected, and you know when you do go and speak to them, like that reaction of oh, it's so good to be listening yes, to. Yes, it's, so it's like a fire hose of insight. I was like, hi, I've just popped. I'm, I'm up for two days. Uh, my name is Rick. I work in digital. The cool bit of digital, not the IT crashy bit of digital. Torrent of information. Yeah. 
and yeah, there's only so much you can you can fix. But even if you fix a few key things, it'll make their life a lot easier and stuff. So yes, and and and, and ultimately, this is where it's, it can sound trite when you like say it out loud. But that, and that is how you deliver the mission of the organisation to fight dementia, the leading cause of death in in the UK. Cool. I mean, not cool. That's not cool. Yeah. But yeah. Course, I mean, the yeah. insight was cool. Totally you just shared. Yeah. Um, uh, so I mean, there's a few other things on my list of questions, but I think we've kind of ticked off a few of those. So from your sort of notes that you made prior to the session, was there anything else that you thought was key that you wanted to discuss? Um, um, I, I, th I think the, the only thing I'd like to, like to say, certainly for, for the listeners, is, 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 is I, find it, I find it fascinating how it's, this is slowly changing, I think. I work at Alzheimer's Society, so that makes my perspective slightly atypical. But I think this is changing in society in the UK. But the, just just uh, how, how interesting what work in inclusive design is, especially with things you might not normally think of as accessibility. Traditionally, accessibility equals screen readers and alt attributes on images is, is, is a thing. That's the nuts and bolts. But it's a, it's a huge church of which that is a tiny but significant slice by volume of people affected. And just how interesting it is to work with a, with a consistent inclusive design angle you don't have to work at somewhere like Alzheimer's society to have that in your practice but just how how having the lens of inclusive design in your work whatever you're working on even if you don't have a specific type of customers where it's a really salient problem how, how much better your design will be if you have diverse people on your project diverse people in your research baking inclusive design in not always, if you do it at all, having it as a separate project that you do at some point. Uh, just, just how, how interesting, rewarding, and useful to the quality of the work you do, factoring for diversity across as much of your UX process as possible. The access, the people on the team, the whole shebang. It's really, it's, it's, it was true before where I've worked, but when you, when you work with extreme users and extreme, you know, more extreme, I guess, situational cause like dementia, it, it's even clearer how valuable that is. Yeah, I mean, it must be said that yeah, it's not. It shouldn't be an addition to your daily UX job, should it? It should just be something. It's, it should, it's part of the course. Yeah. You design for the heart of why UX is such a rewarding. In the data, typically quite a rewarding career with a high level of job satisfaction amongst practitioners is problem solving with design, perhaps with a degree of autonomy in your work, solving real problems for real people. And that's true whether you're designing the sign-up process for Adobe, and it's perhaps even more true where you're directly mapped to, to meaty, meaty, meaty problems. And it's, uh, it's, it's, if you like being a UXer, sweet, feel you. If you want, if you're unfulfilled in your role, look, look, uh, you want to go, you want to get more, not that nitro from your work, try and find a role where you have that kind of cause behind behind it, which might be in charity, but certainly doesn't have to be in charity. Yeah, it could, it could be the environment. Uh, yes, that's a big thing these days. Yeah. Could be political activism. Uh, yeah. You know, whatever your whatever your church, or yeah, it could yeah. be the church. Yeah, you know, whatever, sure. you, whatever your bag. You know, yeah, yeah. if you find something you're passionate about, it, the, the day will go faster, won't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's we we're generally lucky in the career choices that we've made that it's it's like a whole other level of rewardingness if you find that. Cool. Um, I mean, that, that's. I mean, I, I really appreciate your time today, and I'm, I'm conscious I've probably kept you a bit longer than we were planning. Oh, totally um, fine. We're yeah. all always 
thing that happens at, at UX you know, on the scene. You, you find someone at a conference or a meetup, and like, oh, you're from City, like different era. That's cool. Mm-hmm. You're like, you've just done the masters, or you did it before me, and like, oh, City. Um, it's everyone's got a soft spot for it. So, or, or, you know, the scene is happy to help. Brilliant. And um, I mean, this you know, we could go on for hours because you know, I enjoy chatting to you, and you're, you're a font of knowledge. Um, uh, we've got something about your older designing for older people guidelines. We won't mention it here, but you've got it on your website, haven't you? Uh, yes. So one of one of the challenges that you had, particularly as a solo practitioner and, and in a new team, was figure, f- figuring out. Well, I can't research everything all the time, and I need to figure out rules of thumb and heuristics grounded in the literature to help me and people I work with in our practice. So one of the things I did at the beginning of my employment at, at um, Art Science Society is design two sets of guidelines, not perfect. We're working with UC, about to work with UCL Dementia Research Centre to make them a little bit more rigorous and, and, and more valid. But we, we created a set of design guidelines for people with dementia and the parallel track people who are uh, uh, older and older populations it's possible to have typical to have dementia and or be older or mm-hmm. someone who has dementia and you're older taking care of them so that's kind of our our bent in our work um, but, but, but they're on your website now yes yeah, so you can find them um from our uh, accessibility page on alzheimers.org.uk there's uh, those two guidelines older and dementia there's a, a blog post overview for each and then there's kind of a framework for practitioners in a google, in google sheets that you can use to uh, to apply it to your practice yeah, I mean, so, you know, if you like what Rick said and you wanted to learn more and you know, follow his guidelines... Oh, I've else. just thought of something as well. All right. Um, hopefully, with, 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 um, with if, if our business case that we're submitting this week for UX roles is, is approved, this year we will be recruiting um, UX researcher, designer and developer to, to, to grow, grow the, the, the community of practice in our in-house team. So if you're interested in this type of work or if you want if you're affected by dementia and you want to point your professional skills at, at it uh, do follow follow the society or follow me or, or, or subscribe to our job site and um, as long as we get the, the the money unlocked with HR we'll be recruiting those roles in, in 2020. Um, yeah Rick, Rick's uh, always communicating with us on Twitter so we'll share that on our Twitter feed when that comes out. Oh yeah sweet so. answer. Yeah. Um, so yeah I won't keep you any longer thanks a lot for your time Rick today and um, awesome. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah no worries. Cheers. <laughs>